Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. Well, I'm really glad you're here. Good to be back after not being here last weekend on Mother's Day. Got to have a weekend off and I hope you enjoyed Casey jumping in and speaking. He did a great job. I got to listen to him on the live stream and uh, really proud of him and look forward to hearing more from him as well, too. Um, and yeah, so it is a good to be here today as I turn 40. And, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time as a 40 year old uh, this morning. Uh, but, uh, you know, last week, especially uh, processing through this kind of a monumental uh, birthday and you know, thinking back over my life, it's a good kind of birthday to reflect on where you've been and where you want to go and how you feel like you're doing, thinking about my regrets, thinking about what I want to do with my life moving forward, how I want to grow as a person. Um, and, and when I think about the kind of people I aspire to be, the kind of person, the kind of people, men and women, that are examples for me moving forward it's not the most talented or the most successful or the most powerful people that I think about. It's the people who have, in spite of everything, they have endured. They've got the weight of having walked through life and have that kind of sense of scars and joy to show for it. And you know, you can feel they bear that weight of a life well lived. And it's the kind of people that Peter is writing to as we come to this today. This is obviously a passage that is about suffering. It's about struggle. And I'm reminded as we look at this passage that we're reading about a church that had walked through suffering that you and I, most of us, have not even come close to facing. It reminded me of a few years back when I got to walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama in the footsteps of those who marched in 1965. And I remember thinking as I walked over this bridge in the same pathway that they walked down and saw the people who were about to bring incredible violence upon him, that I'm walking steps in the steps of people who have suffered in ways that I will never understand. And as we read 1 Peter, we're reading a letter to people whose suffering most of us will likely never fully come to understand. For most of us, our faith doesn't cost us much of anything. Following Jesus, for most of us, right? It doesn't impact our day-to-day in costly ways. But we do know that many have gone before us. We do know that right now in this moment across the world, there are those who have endured, who are enduring, who do bear these scars that we speak of today, what Dr. King called unearned suffering. Peter's writing these words, and we can know today that when, not if, but when we suffer as followers of Jesus, we have this cloud of witnesses. We have this example to turn to. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to read the scriptures together and break this down. And my prayer this morning for us is that we would be here. It's possible, as you know, to be here and to not be here. And I want to be here and not just here today and what the Lord is speaking from these words that were written 
thousands of years ago. So let me pray for us and let's jump in. Father, I am grateful to open your word today, to come under the authority of not just words on a page, but on, under the authority of the living God who speaks and calls us forward into Christ-likeness, not only as individuals, but as a community. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're speaking today, what you're going to continue to do as we move forward in this time together. We trust you in this, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's look at this together on the screen once again. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, when we speak of suffering, we do so knowing as a as Americans, as Christians, that there is a mindset that often pervades what we bring to Scripture, something that's called triumphalism. Triumphalism is the idea that in Christ, that we are basically on a road of perpetual victory, victory upon victory upon victory upon victory. The whole more than conquerors, no weapon formed against me shall prosper, like we've sung today, as if when we face suffering, it is a sign that we are outside of the will of God. Some forms of Christianity might not outright say this, but the implicit expectation is if, if you suffer, if you struggle, it is because of a lack of faith. It is because of something that you have done to place you outside of the will of God. Now, the problem with that mindset is basically the whole Bible. The whole Bible says otherwise. We're reading to a group of people who did not step outside of the will of God, but Peter is reminding them that in their suffering, in their obedience, they should not be surprised. Back in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he says, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. How can we rejoice and praise when we suffer? Do you have to detach yourself from reality in order to praise God when things are hard? In a triumphant mindset, yes, because as you suffer, you have to release the idea that maybe I'm not living in the will of God because of these things. You have to detach yourself from reality, this idea that this long string of victory is not mine as I thought it would be. And we know that's not the case. But while we have that triumphant mentality on one side, there is also another misunderstanding of God's character that's a deterministic vision of God that tells us that he plans what we suffer. That he actually is up in heaven thinking, yep, they should suffer. 
Now, there is mystery in the will of God. There is mystery in the character of God. But what we can know is that God is not misrepresented. It is misrepresented in thinking that we have to look at this and he's standing up there and saying, hey, just grit your teeth and take it. This is what I wanted for you. It doesn't represent God's character. Instead, what we see in 1 Peter is that really in every page of the scriptures that we may not know why God is allowing us to suffer. We may not know that God is willing our suffering, but we can know that he's not wasting our suffering. So the why may never become clear, but we know with, even without the why that he is not wasting what we are facing. Now, this word that he's talking about with test does not mean proving uh, the value of your life before God. It's talking about the deepening of our faith, the refining of our faith. And in order to do this, Peter says something that to us sounds strange. He says that when we suffer, we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Meaning that the cross is not for us today, this just source of salvation. It's the solidarity of God with us in our suffering. Jesus didn't simply die. Jesus suffered. And in God, in flesh, suffering with us and for us, everything we suffer now is identifiable in the redemption of God in the cross. Meaning that when we share in his sufferings, when we suffer we know that we can look to the one who suffered to be with us in this. This is what it means to live a cruciformed life. I may not understand what I suffer. I may not understand why I suffer, but I can always know what God is doing in the midst of that suffering, bringing about my good. So it's no accident when Peter says this next. He says, humble yourselves Therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Here, Peter is echoing this early hymn we see in Philippians 2, where it's talking about Jesus. It says, who in being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you've lived with a distorted version of God's character, when you hear humble yourselves, it almost can sound like get over it. If you believe that God is angry and distant and unaffected by what you face in this life, humble yourselves means you just need to deal with it and move on. But... On the contrary, Peter is making it clear that Peter says you have a God who has gone before you as you suffer. You have a God who, when asking you to humble yourself, you can look to Jesus, the one who has already humbled himself. You're being called into a humility where Jesus has gone before you, knowing that in your suffering, humility is not humiliation. Because God was humiliated on the cross, I no longer have to find humiliation in being humble. I can lower myself because one has gone far lower than I will ever have to go. And I have and live in that humility because of what he suffered. Andrew Murray, in his book about humility, says, Here is the path 
to the higher life. Down, lower down. Just as water always seeks and feels the lowest place, so the moment God finds men abased and empty, his glory and power flow into exalt and to bless. I love that. In the lowness of where we are, in the humility, we are filled. This is the paradox of the cross. Peter continues saying, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for we have a bunch of people in a managing anxiety class in this room that's meeting right before this service. I love this verse. It's a comfort. Yeah. Anxiety. Woo. Yeah. It's the best. This verse is a comfort for us. And, and I love it because what it implies is that you don't have to pretend like walking around and suffering is unaffecting. Like it doesn't touch you. It doesn't say don't have anxiety, don't, don't do that. It says as you have it, as you suffer, cast it upon him. Now we all face anxiety in different ways and different forms. No one would look at me usually and think, that's a really anxious guy. I'm a pretty easygoing person. But in reality, I have learned and am learning that I carry my anxiety not in my mind but in my body. And so while I may not feel with emotions a sense of my own anxiety, my body begins to tense up. My body can't let go of what it is feeling. My body is prophesying to my mind to remind me things that I can't even understand. So when I think about casting my anxiety upon God, it may not, for me, always be long, elaborate prayers of pouring out what I'm thinking and feeling because a lot of times my mind has not yet caught up to my body. So when I cast my anxiety upon God, what I am learning, still learning to do, is allowing myself to relax, allowing myself to receive peace, allowing my body to have a say in what God is doing in my life and not just my mind. Now, you may be different. You may be thinking all the time about how you're feeling. Your anxiety may affect your mind and not your body. I have and continue to learn the process of what it looks like to name and to listen to these places within me and know that as I see them, they're not a place of shame, but an opportunity to then Offer them up to God and worship. And you and I, in however we experience this anxiety, we can do this without shame because we can look to the Savior himself who walked into the garden and was so anxious that he began sweating drops of blood. That's a comfort to me, knowing that if Jesus can face that kind of anxious reality and move forward in obedience then I'm not broken and messed up when I feel this in my suffering. That I'm not somehow lower than everyone else who is just living footloose and fancy free. I can identify with a Savior who has been in that dark anxiety as well. And in humility, Jesus then brings his identity to the Father so that you and I, as we experience anxiety, however we feel that, can also bring it to him as well. And I love that word cast because this is a word that doesn't speak to a clean and hesitant, polite placing these anxieties down and hoping God 
fixes them. Cast, even in the the Greek where it's written here, speaks to releasing, throwing something that is heavy that we can no longer hold ourselves onto the one who can. Not just leaving something behind. This is a word that speaks to heaving something, to throwing it in all of our strength and desperation. That's the call that we're given in our anxiety. To feel the weight, not to minimize it, but to cast all of the weight that we feel on the one who sweat those drops of blood in the garden, who experienced anxiety so that we could bring it without shame to the Father and cast it upon them. Cast all of your anxieties upon him. Because the one who cried out in the garden, the one who cried out from the cross is the one who cares for you. Not a God who is far away and detached and shaming you for what you feel. This is the God who is with you and for you in what you feel. And it's in this anxiety and suffering that we often find ourselves very vulnerable. Peter continues on, look with me. It says, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. That word devil in the Greek is interesting because it speaks to something very specific. It literally means a false accuser, a slanderer, someone who speaks wrongly of you. This is the heart of the enemy's battle against us. It is accusation and condemnation. It's easy to take this verse, and many have, and become the kind of person who sees a demon around every single corner. My flat tire was a demonic attack. And while I certainly believe in, and I've had experience with the demonic as a spiritual reality, I don't want to minimize that at all. The primary field attack is not your flat tire, it's your mind. There's a reason he's called in the scriptures the accuser of the brethren. And when we suffer, we find ourselves vulnerable in our mind, vulnerable to the accusations of the enemy, but also, and please don't miss this, vulnerable to becoming the accusers ourselves, to joining in his accusations against others, to blaming and belittling others, to demonizing those who we feel deserve what we are facing ourselves. Suffering not only makes us vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy on our own mind, it's making us vulnerable to offer those same attacks on everyone around us. So Peter says, be alert, be sober-minded, resist Stand firm. And the reason why is that Peter says that all our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing the same attacks. Meaning that when we suffer, we not only have the solidarity of God, we have the solidarity, hopefully, of one another. As we suffer, as we face these attacks on our mind. I'm amazed how often I walk in a room like this and I assume that I'm the only one facing what I'm facing. It just becomes natural to me to walk into a church gathering or a gathering in a home for community group and, and 
internally just see myself as being the only one who is facing the very thing I'm facing right now. And that is incredibly intentional on the enemy's part. One of the most common accusations that come out of the enemy's voice to us is you are on your own. No one's feeling what you feel. No one is facing what you face. No one could ever understand you. And therefore, separate. So if you name that experience, if you offer up your pain to others, it's just going to make it worse. And I've seen it over and over again. Because the fruit of this accusation is always isolation. It's always both sides in shame, internalizing lies about ourselves. And in those shame and lies, internalizing them about others and seeing division and isolation. I wonder, I wonder how much tension and division that you and I willingly accept because we believe what the enemy wants us to think about other people. Wants us to think about how they see us. How much we just assume is division and is okay because we believe the accusations. That's the goal. The goal in any church, the goal in any marriage, the goal in any relationship, in the enemy's mind, is to get inside your head and make you think something about those people that is not true. Because if he can do that, he can step in between you. And isolation and division is the aim. As a church, as friends, as family, it is vitally important that we learn to recognize the accusations against ourselves. And we learn to recognize when I am joining the voice of the accuser in my mind or even with my words against other people. Because we suffer and we separate. When we speak about division in the church, division is not a matter of preference. It's a matter of love that has been lost because the enemy has brought to mind these divisions. But there's a promise in this. As we see our scapegoating, as we see how we begin to point fingers, there's a promise moving forward that gives us hope as this passage continues. It says, And the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. This is both a promise that speaks to our future and it's a promise that speaks to our present. Peter uses language that almost harkens the, the, the mindset of a builder 
as he comes to a building that's been toppled by a storm. The promise of God, he says, is to restore, to make you strong, firm, and steadfast. In the Greek, it literally means means to mend you. It means to lay a foundation in your life that is sound and stable and strong and secure. The promise that we have moving through our sufferings, facing the battles and the accusations against us, is that God is moving us towards restoration. God is taking us in our suffering and has already begun to bring about restoration in our lives. There's one word in there I don't want you to miss. It's going to be underlined here on the, on the passage. It says in there that he himself is going to do it. Himself. The restoring work of God, my friends, is not an impersonal after effect of showing up to church every now and then. The restoring work of God is a personal, intentional act by the living, risen Jesus in you and for you. It is not cause and effect. It is not karma. Jesus himself steps into your story, steps into your suffering, steps into the accusations, and personally and intentionally invests in your wholeness. Jesus is committed to your wholeness. Jesus is committed in the face of what you feel, in the face of your anxiety, to bring about your good. Not up there, here, now, present. And this is the hope that grounds us when it feels like the, the ground is moving beneath our feet when it feels like the anxiety is going to overwhelm us and we find ourselves on our knees. As we may not know why we are suffering and facing what we are facing, but in the hands of God, who is present and for me, I know, as Philippians 1.6 says, that what God begins in me, he's going to bring to completion. What God begins in me is not just going to stop because of what I feel and what I face. He is not done yet with what he is doing in me. I know as a pastor, I stand before you today knowing that all of us in some point, in some manner of our story, will walk into seasons of suffering. I know some of you are in it now. And my hope as we bring the scriptures together before the living God and look and submit to what he's speaking is that on that day, in that deathbed, in that moment of darkness, we have an anchor to hold on to beyond some fluffy good ideas. You have good news that anchors your soul. That's my prayer and my hope. There are days when it feels like sin is nearer to us than our Savior. There are days when it feels like the voice of the accuser is far, far louder than the voice of the Father. And for this, Peter says, for this I preach to you today, stand firm. Stand firm. There is one who not only suffered for you, but suffers with you. There is one who was humiliated so that in humility you could have honor. 
There is one that because of how he suffered, there is no suffering that we face that is either final or fatal. We have resurrection hope today. It is still Easter tide. It is still Easter up in this place. And no matter what we face in this, we have resurrection hope that God is bringing our wholeness. As we move into a time of communion, what I wanted to do today, what I just felt really pressed to do in this moment today is I, I, I want to pray that the voice of the enemy would be recognized in ways it hasn't and that today those chains are broken. That we learn to hear and as we learn to hear, we learn to silence and call upon the word of God when these accusations come against us. So whether that be against us in our own minds, in our own stories, or where we recognize that we have joined with the enemy in accusing others, that we would hear that, that we call upon the name of the Lord to save us and call us forward into the truth. And that this morning as we take these elements, we can know that we are listening to lies from a defeated enemy. The only thing he has is lies. The victory's been won. So if he can get us to believe lies about ourselves, about others, about our neighbors, about our enemies, he's won. But what we have today is the hope as we take the body broken for us, the blood shed for our sins, is that this represents a victory that has been won for us, that we do not have to earn, we do not have to prove. But in the good news of the gospel today, we can know we have hope and victory right where we are. Father, your word is living and active because you're living and active. And today, I know I recognize a voice of accusation, a voice of shame voice of pride my Lord I want to repent of the times when I have joined in with the accusations when I have failed to love my brothers and sisters as myself when I have failed to love my neighbor as myself today in the power of the Holy Spirit I just pray The chains are broken. The lies that have led us into places of division and tension. And that what erupts from a room like today is reconciliation and wholeness. Not just in ourselves, but in our relationships. As we come together and see each other through the eyes of God knowing that he is committed not only to our wholeness, but theirs as well. So Lord, bring about that reconciliation even.